Welcome to the podcast, How to Be Well and Strong. I'm your host, Jacqueline Genova, and I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with some of the leading figures in the fields of wellness, integrative medicine, and mental health, as we discover what it truly means to be well and strong in both body and mind. Get ready to be empowered, inspired, and motivated about being an advocate for your own health. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the show. I am honored to be speaking with today's guest, Chris Wark, a man who has had a truly profound impact on my life over the past few years as I've navigated the world of nutrition and alternative medicine for my mom during her cancer journey. Chris is a young adult cancer survivor, best-selling author, and patient advocate. Chris was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer in 2003 at just 26 years old. After surgery, Chris made the decision to go against his doctor's advice, opted out of chemotherapy, and chose to use nutrition and natural therapies to heal. Six years later, in 2010, Chris began sharing his story of faith, courage, and determination, and his message of hope that chronic diseases like cancer can be prevented and reversed with a radical transformation of diet and lifestyle. In the last decade, Chris has become one of the most well-known cancer survivors on the planet, and reaches millions of people per year as a blogger, podcaster, speaker, and global health coach through his books, social media, and his website, chrisbeatcancer.com. Chris is also creator of the Square One Cancer Coaching Program, which has been shared with over 1 million people globally since 2017. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I am so grateful to have you here. And I just wanted to start, Chris, by congratulating you on those wonderful accomplishments and say thank you for all of the instrumental work that you have done over the past, what, two decades and that you continue to do today. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, I am I am approaching my 20-year cancerversary in December, which is a pretty big milestone for me. And uh, I've been a public figure, patient advocate, and survivor since 2010. That's when I started chrisbeatcancer.com and started sharing my story. And so, yeah, 13 years of doing that. Incredible. And Chris, I'm sure you've recalled the story many a time, but for listeners who are not familiar with your work, can you share a bit about your personal cancer journey and essentially how that led to your passion for being in this space? Sure. I was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer when I was 26 and I had surgery. I was rushed into surgery, which is very typical, um, very typical treatment of cancer patients. As soon as you get a diagnosis, uh, there's a, an urgency, um, and patients are rushed into treatment out of fear and they typically don't have any idea what's in store, what the treatment involves, what the risks are how much it's going to impact their survival, what the long-term health benefits or detriments are, especially when it comes to surgeries, removing organs, uh, chemotherapy treatments, radiation treatments. And uh, that's one of the biggest problems in the cancer treatment world is that patients are coerced into treatment out of fear. And I was very much, uh, I know this because one, I lived it. And two, I've talked to thousands of cancer patients over the years. And it's the same story pretty much for everyone. Um, but I had surgery that took out the tumor. Uh, and when I woke up, they said, you're stage three, which is worse than they thought. They were hoping it would be stage two. Stage three meant I needed chemotherapy. And that's what I was told. 
And, but when I got out of the hospital, I, as I sobered up and recovered from surgery and weaned myself off the pain medication, I started thinking about my life and my future. And I didn't want to do chemotherapy. I just had a resistance to it because I, I knew how toxic and destructive it was. I mean, I had an idea. I didn't really know as much as I know now, but I, um, my instincts, and my intuition were definitely giving me, um, pause and aversion to it. And I prayed about it. And I just said, God, if there's another way besides chemotherapy, please show me, I don't know what to do. I don't have peace about this. And I got a book that was written by George Malkmus. Um, a friend of my dad's sent me a book by George Malkmus. And that book was about healing with raw food. And George, as it turned out, had healed his colon cancer by adopting a raw food diet and juicing. When I say raw food, I mean raw organic fruits and vegetables. And um, I was so inspired by his story. I mean, I knew it was an answer to prayer. I was, it gave me so much hope and encouragement. And uh, I, I just was excited to change my life, to see what would happen. And so I converted overnight from eating a Western diet the standard American diet, which is lots of meat and dairy, processed food, fast food, junk food, sugar, salt, and oils, to eating a diet that was exclusively raw, organic fruits and vegetables, and drinking uh, 64 ounces of vegetable juice every single day, mostly carrot juice. And... Um, I was on my way. You know, there, there, there wasn't a whole lot of deliberation. I, I just, I prayed, I got an answer and I was like, I'm doing it. Now there were, I did have opposition. People around me, family members didn't understand. And I talk about this in great detail in my, in my first book, which is called Chris Beat Cancer. But the short version of the story is that, uh, you know, I had a lot of family pressure and I went to see an oncologist to appease my family members and that appointment went badly. And I was told I had a 60% chance of living five years if I did treatment. He didn't tell me what my odds were if I didn't do treatment because I didn't ask him. Um, I was, I asked him about the raw food diet. He said I couldn't do that if I did chemo because it would fight the chemo. Um, I asked him if there were any alternative therapies available, and he said, no, there are none. If you don't do chemo, you're insane. That's what he said verbatim. And he proceeded to just sort of berate my wife and I with every sort of arrow in his quiver uh, to convince me to do chemotherapy. And he just talked and talked and talked, and I, I just kind of went into, you know, like deer in the headlights, tunnel vision in that, in that meeting. And I, I barely remember anything he said to me because there was so much fear and he really treated, treated us badly and, uh, tried his best to coerce me into chemotherapy. And he actually did. He was successful in the, in that when I left that appointment, I made an, I, before I left the clinic, I made an appointment to get a port put in, which is what they have to do before they give you chemo. That was several weeks away. And, uh, and it was a real low point that day. We walked out to my wife's car and just held hands and just cried and choked out a prayer. And it was, 
it was a really, really difficult day, but I, I'm glad that it happened because it gave me insight into to how patients are treated. And it's cancer clinics are just like fear factories. And I created a free guide for cancer patients. It's called 20 Questions for Your Oncologist. If you go to chrisbeatcancer.com, there's a link to it on every page of my website. It's free. Download it. If you have cancer or if you're a caregiver, download it. Go through the questions. It's an hour of me teaching, explaining these questions, why you need to ask them, the type of answers you're going to get, what those answers mean. Because if you don't ask the right questions, you, you will not have enough information to make a good decision. And you're just going to make a decision out of fear. And fear-based decisions are almost always the wrong decision, no matter what where you are in life, right? A fear-based decision is almost always the wrong decision. Unless someone's attacking you and, and fear is prompting you to run away. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. And Chris, quick note on that too. Your guide was one of the first things that I downloaded. So my mom was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer back in 2008. And then in 2018, we found out it metastasized and it turned my world upside down in the sense of, I knew the importance of nutrition, but I didn't actually start to really question oncology until 2018 and really dive into the world of alternative medicine and questioning your oncologist, what do these statistics mean? And understanding the difference between progression-free survival and overall survival, right? Because they present very different diction essentially to their patients. So that guide was truly instrumental. So thank you for that. I'm so glad. I am so glad to know that you used it and it was helpful uh, yeah, the language, and, and I talk about this in great detail in that guy, but also in my book, the language that oncologists are trained to use uh, is is very deceptive. Uh, and they sort of dance around the truth with words that sound good to the average ignorant patient, but that do not mean what you think they mean. And the easy example is when a, a doctor says, well, this, you know, you have this type of cancer and this is the treatment we're going to do. And this treatment is shown to be very effective for your type of cancer, yep. right? Well, the patient here is very effective. And to the patient, that means cure, right? The, well, my doctor said, this is a very effective treatment, but very effective just means the treatment has been shown to shrink a tumor, right? It shrinks tumors, right? For some period of time. But it doesn't mean cure, right? It just means tumor shrinkage. That's all that effective can mean. <laughs> and so, and you mentioned progression-free survival versus overall survival. And that's, that's a big difference too, because they'll throw statistics at you. You know, it's survival statistics, and they may not differentiate between those two things. And the big difference is progression-free just means patients lived a little longer before the cancer came back right? Overall means they actually lived, they got well, right? And um, cure, you know, the overall survival is more indicative of a cure. Uh, but it, then again, it just depends on how long the measurement of time that they're actually referring to in the study. So they, there might be a study that was only five years. So they might say oh, overall survival was really high in five years, but what happens in year six or seven or eight or 10? How many people have a recurrence and end up dying? So there's so many ways that these drug studies can be parsed and dissected and spun to make a drug therapy sound much more effective than it really is. And 
there's no way for you to know unless you know the right questions to ask and, and, and unless you read and research. Even just reading my book, you'll, you'll get a very useful, workable knowledge of how to interpret you know, these kind of conversations with an oncologist. So anyway, yeah, that, that's a rabbit trail, but it's a, it's a big mess. And, um, and so I, you know, again, I'm, I found an integrative oncologist and I found a naturopathic doctor and I assembled a very small team um, a very small support system for myself in the beginning. And I felt very much alone. I was alone. Like, you know, it's a lone cancer is a lonely journey. And even if you have people supporting you, you, it's, it's hard. And, um, I, I decided to not get the port put in the day I was supposed to go. I just said, I'm not doing it. I don't have peace about it. I don't want to do that right now. I, I can always get chemo. Right. But what I was most excited about and felt strongest about was radically changing my life in every way. Like the raw food diet was just the first step in, in a series of massive life changes. And I wanted to walk that out. I wanted to see what would happen if I really focused on healing myself and, and taking care of myself in a way that I never had before question on the earlier part about the support. So I had our our mutual friend Susie Griswold on the show last week. And one thing we touched on was the importance of having support in that cancer journey, right? And Susie had shared with me that initially she did not have the support of her family when she opted to pursue a more alternative route. And I understand, as you just said, that was kind of the case with you as well. So how did you make that decision to forgo the conventional protocol while not having that critical support you know, from the people closest to you? You know, it was, it was a survival decision. I just knew in my core that I, like I said earlier, I prayed, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer. I prayed, I asked for something and something showed up. And so I just knew, even though everyone else didn't understand, uh, I knew this was a path I had to take. Like this was, God gave me another path, right? And both paths were scary, right? It wasn't like, Chemo wasn't scary because it was, and not doing chemo wasn't scary because it was scary too, right? They were both scary, you know? They were both difficult. It's like the Israelites in Egypt. They were in a very difficult, harsh environment in Egypt, and then leaving Egypt was also a very difficult and harsh environment in different ways. Yeah. And um, so I had to go out, I had to venture out into the wilderness in, in a very similar way. And when you, when you go into the wilderness, it really forces you to trust God in a way that you haven't before, because I had no direction and I needed, I was desperate for direction and encouragement during that time in my life, you know, where I just, like I said, I'm just in the wilderness alone. Amen to that. And God truly does meet you in the wilderness. And I've, I've witnessed that firsthand with my mom over the past few years, but to the point, too, about time, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. So many cancer patients go into the office upon just finding out they have cancer, and within two weeks, it's radiation, chemo, whatever drug is out there, not recognizing that cancer, and you've said this many a time, takes years to form, right? So why are we pressured within the span of a month to make these decisions that are going to have massive impact on our long-term health. And again, we can't make solid, rational decisions in that fear mindset. With my mom, I'm not necessarily the patient, but I also have been paralyzed with fear at times, you know, in that office. But it's really important just to take a step back and say, okay, these are our choices. We do have time. Do not be rushed into anything. But couldn't agree more with you there. And 
I know that back in 2004, the amount of information on alternative medicine was essentially non-existent, aside from books. There's very little. Yeah, I had a handful of books, and most of them came from my mom because she had been a collector of health and wellness books and obscure books on natural remedies and, and alternative cancer treatments. Like, she already had these books. It was, it was you know, a total God thing because she didn't have cancer. She, didn't, she wasn't a caregiver. Like, she just was a voracious reader and lifelong learner. And, um, you know, I'd always just been interested in, interested in prevention, staying healthy and, and wanted to arm herself with knowledge in case she had a health problem. And it turns out she was saving up all these, you know, health and wellness books for me. It's incredible. Yeah. So I, I read a lot of, a lot of out of print, hard to find books. And the cool thing is like, they they were all confirmatory. They all were repeating, for the most part, the same message, which was so helpful to me. I mean, after reading a number of them, I'm like, okay, like <laughs> every book I'm reading, right, whether it's a cancer battle plan or Dr. Lorraine Day or Dr. Richard Schultz or George Malcolm, like they're all saying raw food, the raw diet and juicing, exercise, stress reduction, faith, forgiveness, yep. right, a positive mindset, like they're all saying, do these things, right? Detoxification is a part, you know, part of that too. So today it's, I think in some ways it's easier because you can connect with people and there's more information, but it's also harder because there's a lot of misinformation. It just... So much harder. That's my question to you. And I mean, you know this better than anyone, but Google today suppresses alternative health sites. And there are so many people in the wellness space who are just putting stuff out there without referencing any type of science or data to support their claims. And it's become increasingly difficult, myself included, for people to discern fact from fiction. So what are some of your your go-to resources when it comes to finding accurate information? I mean, I'm a huge fan of the Moss Reports. I know you've had Dr. Moss on your mm -hmm. podcast before, but are there any other resources that you rely on? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, first of all, Google, yeah, has censored my site. There was a time, um, I'd say the first eight years, my site continued to grow in popularity and Google rankings and, and was had become somewhat of an authority site. And then in 2018, I believe Google made a big change to their algorithm. And all of a sudden a bunch of sites like mine, Dr. Mercola, natural yeah. news, uh, were just, it was like, they were almost deleted from Google. We got, like my articles just stopped showing up when people would search for different topics that I'd written on. And, uh, and so, yeah, that, that was the first wave of suppression was back in 2018. YouTube demonetized my channel, uh, in maybe 2019, which hurt my, my reach a lot. Um, YouTube has just recently changed their medical misinformation guidelines and then has deleted 10 of my videos so far out of 450 videos, it's crazy. which doesn't sound like a lot, but and these are videos and interviews that were maybe, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. I mean, they've been on YouTube a long time. And all of a sudden YouTube has decided you can't talk about Gerson therapy. You can't talk about coffee enemas. You can't talk about apricot kernels and, um, you know, but you can talk about pharmaceuticals and drug companies can run ads promoting their ph pharmaceuticals, which are incredibly dangerous compounds that cause illness, disease, and death. Right. That's totally fine, but you can't talk about a coffee enema. <laughs> you know, like nobody's died from a coffee enema. But uh, anyway, 
just, you know, I think it's good for, for the public to be aware, you know, of, of the censorship that's going on. And, um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I've learned from a lot of sources over the years and, um, I, I still read a lot and I'm paying attention to, I mean, a lot of the information I get, I get from, you know, the scientific community from staying, staying on top of nutritional science and cancer research. And so every day, I mean, I'm reading papers and studies and digging and trying to learn more and find, you know, it just, there's so much and there's more than you can even read. It's incredible how much anti-cancer nutritional science has already been published and, um, and it continues to be published, but, uh, the problem with our current medical system is that the pharmaceutical industry really controls the medical industry. And so doctors are just trained to prescribe drugs and they're not trained in nutrition or diet and lifestyle medicine. And so you can't look to a doctor and expect to get health advice because most doctors are not healthy anyway. They don't eat healthy. A lot of them drink too much alcohol or smoke cigarettes. Um, many doctors are on numerous pharmaceuticals for for their health problems and, uh, and are overweight. And so like, don't ask your doctor uh, health advice. They, you know, I mean, it's few and far between where you'll find a doctor that is actually well-educated and they have to do it on their own. Exactly. Well-educated in nutritional science and especially for, for cancer specifically. So I initially just learned from a handful of people who had healed cancer and doctors who were also helping people heal with these methods. And that was enough for me, right? It was enough for me to believe that healing was possible. And that's the most important thing of all. Like you have to believe, you must believe that healing is possible. That's the first step of having what I call the beat cancer mindset. You've got to believe that healing is possible. Well, how do you, how do you foster that belief? Well, you have to find some people who've done it, yeah. right? You just need one story, right? I had one guy, one man's book in the beginning, and that was enough for me to believe that healing was possible. And since then, you know, since I've gone public with my story, I've interviewed dozens and dozens and dozens of people who've healed all types and stages of cancer. They're on the Chris Beat Cancer podcast and my yeah. YouTube channel and my website. They're easy to find. You can go to the website and type in, you know, lymphoma or leukemia or breast cancer, or colon cancer, lung cancer, you know, multiple myeloma, and you will find these incredible interviews with people who've healed against yeah. the odds. Some of them healed with no conventional treatment. Some of them healed after conventional treatment failed. Yep. And, you know, the, the sort of question I like to put out there to the skeptic is like, how many people have to climb Mount Everest before you believe it's possible? Right. I mean, how many people have to climb the mountain before you believe it's possible? doesn't mean everyone can do it. doesn't mean it's not difficult and dangerous. There's certainly perils. And you have to really train and prepare and have good guidance to get to the top, right? But it's possible. Healing is possible. The body creates cancer and the body can heal if given the proper nutrients and care. Amen to that. And in addition to the power of belief, Chris, I think it's also incredibly important to speak words of life over yourself. I love your book, Beat Cancer Daily. That also has been truly instrumental in my mom's journey. And even mine, I don't have cancer and I have my own copy here that I read every day. But for listeners, it's essentially just a daily devotional with scripture and just truth that, you know, you fill your mind with every morning and it, it truly changes your life. And to that point too, I think it's extra important to ensure that 
your care team is speaking words of life, right? And sadly, most conventional oncologists don't do that. And I love Dr. Thomas Lodi. He has this wonderful Q&A live podcast, and he always refers to the, the doctors in white coats that put hexes on their patients and saying, you have X amount of time to live. And when a patient hears that, it stays with them, right? So anyone out there who has a doctor like that, leave that doctor. Find someone who will speak words of life, someone who will be open to the different healing modalities that you might want to pursue because what the doctor says is not gospel. And that's truly the mission of Well and Strong, Chris. It's to encourage patients to be advocates of their own health. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, Don, Dr. Thomas Lodi uh, loves to refer to and uh, and uh, other physicians as witches and warlocks. Yes. <laughs> which I, I, I think is... He's right on the money. That's is definitely the way some of them operate and uh, and pronouncing, um, you know, basically telling someone when they're going to die, you know, you have three months to live, six months to live, that kind of thing. It's witchcraft. It is. It's sorcery. Yeah. You know, no, no person has the authority to dictate the end of your life unless you give it to them. Exactly. Right? And the problem is patients, they get this pronouncement, right? This curse, this medical hex put on them, and then they believe it. And it usually does come true. The ones that we see survive against the odds are the ones who reject that pronouncement, right? They, they may hear you have six months to live and they say, no, I don't, right? I reject that. Like, I'm going to live. I'm going to survive. I'm going to thrive. I'm going to get well. and I'm going to prove you wrong, right? And you have to be, you have to foster up that determination, right? And find your will to live, and use that, use the fear, right, to propel you forward into action, right? You can channel fear into positive action. And that's the best use of fear, right? Surely. Is to kick you in the pants, right? Because the other response to fear is to run away or to cower or to be paralyzed, right? That's not a good response to fear, right? The response to fear is like, okay, this is a problem. This is scary. This is a threat. I've got to take some action. Like I've got to to move forward in spite of my fear. And that's what courage is, right? Courage is, is not a feeling. Bravery is not a feeling. Fear is the feeling. Courage is moving forward in spite of fear. I love that. And I think too, it's also really important to ensure that that force of determination is consistent across whatever therapy you're doing. Because there's so many, right, Chris? Like there's high dose IVC, there's mistletoe therapy, there's hyperbaric oxygen, off-label drugs. And I think not to go on a tangent, but one thing I've really struggled with from my mom in particular is just trying to figure out what route to take because so many people have had success within those different treatments essentially. But I think at the end of the day, it comes down to the power of belief, right? I had spoken with Eva Lee's page a while back, and she said that as she was doing those mistletoe injections, she envisioned the mistletoe eating away at the tumors like a Pac-Man. And again, the power of the mind in creating the effect that you want from the therapy, it's, it's so, so powerful. It's true. I mean, I've interviewed people who, yeah, I mean who prayer was a huge part of their healing, miraculous healing, just from prayer and faith. Um, the, the Your mindset is powerful, getting in a meditative state and really visualizing yourself getting well, visualizing your immune cells becoming stronger and attacking cancer cells and breaking down tumors. Those are powerful practices. Um, and I think a lot of patients who are on the holistic path, yeah, are 
do have some confusion and not, they're not sure where to start and what to do and they feel overwhelmed. And I get that because I was there too. And I, I had, I've said this already, I'm repeating myself a bit, but um, it was a bit of a blessing to me to have limited information, right? I was overwhelmed enough with the limited information I have. I didn't know about mistletoe. I didn't, I knew about hyperbaric oxygen and I did have IV vitamin C treatments, but there's no talk of off-label drugs, right? There was, uh, there were so many, uh, there are, there's so many herbal supplements and other therapeutics and ozone and things like that. I didn't know anything about. And so I'm kind of thankful in a way, (laughs) um, because it really forced me to stay on the, on the, just the foundational path, which is what I teach. And what, what I teach in the square one program is like, if you, if you really want to change your life in a massive way and impact your health in a massive way, there are foundational things that you have to do. And none of them happen in the doctor's office. Yep. Right. It's what you're eating. It's how you're moving your body. It's how you're, you're living your, your day from sunup to sunrise. It's how you're thinking. It's how you're relating to people, how you're acting, reacting. It's choosing to forgive. It's choosing to get out of stressful situations um, it is focusing on nutrition and detoxification. These are all things that people can do. And none of that happens in the doctor's office. And so all the other stuff is ancillary. And what I find is the people that chase after all the treatments, the miracle cures and the treatments typically don't do as well as people who focus on the foundational things, get that daily routine in place that's optimized for health and healing. And then they add some stuff to the mix. As Susie says, healing occurs in the home. Yeah. Healing happens at home. It happens at home. And I think too, I mean, there's so many patients and I've fallen victim to this, to looking at clinics worldwide in Mexico and California and Texas and and wondering, you know, patients who go there stage four, are they truly healed? But then you look at the patients who do go there and then they'll return home and then they'll often have a recurrence because they haven't continued to abide by whatever they were doing in the clinic. Right. So to your point, it's about the daily practices that you do indefinitely. That's for life. It's not just during that one period of sickness. There are some good clinics in Germany, in Mexico, um, and but no one's cured in three weeks. That's yeah. the thing. So you can go to a clinic, you can have a wonderful experience, hopefully. You may start to feel better, right? You may have some measurable improvement, improvement in your blood work, improvement in your energy, tumor shrinkage. That's great. But healing happens at home. And so what are you doing at home to, to promote health and healing? And you've got to, you know, get, you know, get rid of your bad habits. You got to flood your body with nutrition. You have to, you know, address the stress in your life. Like these are steps that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to do anything. But what I'm, what I'm saying is my message that I'm preaching is that the people who survive against the odds, we all did the same stuff. Yep. You know, there's common threads in all of the survivor stories I've ever interviewed. And, uh, and so those are the things that you want to focus on back to the Everest analogy. It's like, if you're going to climb Mount Everest, you want to go up the path that everybody's taken already. You know, it's already hard enough and people don't make it going on the, the established route, yep. <laughs> right? And so you want to be very careful of not taking some uh, path that has even mo- less likelihood of success and more hazards, right? 
And, uh, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there promoting these, what I'd say, unnecessarily hazardous paths to health, yep. like the ketogenic diet, for example. Jumping over to nutrition, because that's obviously you know, a foundational part of, of cancer management in an area that both you and I are very passionate about. It could be its own entire episode, but for the sake of time, I want to start with what are the top three nutritional strategies that you implemented in your healing protocol? You obviously mentioned juicing played a huge role. Uh, number one is the raw food diet. It's, it's it flooding your body with an abundance of raw food. When you eat food straight from the earth, all organic, or as much, as, as much organic as possible, you're flooding your body with vitamins, minerals, enzymes, antioxidants, water, fiber, and good bacteria. And when you eat processed food, cooked food, dead food, animal food, you're not getting hardly any of those things. And there are incredible anti-cancer compounds. And in um, the allium family, which is um, garlic, onions, and leeks, and in the cruciferous family, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, bok choy, uh, wasabi, horseradish. And um, what I did was I ate a giant salad every single day for lunch and dinner. And I don't, I don't mean a big bowl of lettuce with tomatoes and ranch dressing. I mean broccoli, cauliflower, kale, cabbage, onions, mushrooms, peppers, sprouts, avocado, almonds and walnuts, apple cider vinegar, sauerkraut or kimchi, olive oil, cayenne pepper, garlic powder, yeah. turmeric or curry powder, oregano, Italian seasoning. <laughs> okay. Very familiar with that. I've had my mom make it for the past few years. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's on the cover of my cookbook, which is called Beat Cancer Kitchen. And it's an amazing, delicious, savory, spicy, like it, it hits all the, it's got all the flavors. I mean, it's, 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 it's such a delicious bowl of vegetables. And um, when I first sort of was, you know, concocting this thing, trying to figure out how I could eat the maximum amount of produce every day, you know, it was just, it just kind of came about of me trying to throw everything I could in a bowl at the same time, like every anti-cancer herb and spice and vegetable. And then I realized like, this is, this is great. It's delicious. There's nothing there's nothing more nutritious than this giant salad. It, ha it has everything I need and more. And it, it became just obvious to me, like, oh, I just need to eat this every day. This is it. This is the path, right? I, there's no other way I can get more anti-cancer nutrition in my body than eating this giant salad twice a day, except perhaps eating it three times a day. Um, and then juicing is a way to add nutrition on top of what you're eating. So it doesn't replace a meal, Juice is medicine. Think about juice as, as like a supplement, right? A juice is a plant extract, right? You're extracting vitamins, minerals, enzymes, antioxidants, and phytonutrients from a carrot. And when you drink it, it goes straight into your bloodstream, straight to your cells, and it's delivering these anti-cancer compounds and detoxifying compounds and beneficial nutrients to your into your blood, to your cells, to your muscles, and, and to the tumor, and there's compounds in carrots and beets and celery and uh, turmeric root and garlic that um, switch off cancer-promoting genes that tell cancer cells to commit suicide, that kill cancer cells on contact, that prevent tumors from forming new blood vessels. So it's like, okay, well, now that I know that, I want to flood my body with these nutrients every day. And, uh, and so the food really is the foundation. So that when you say the top 
foods, it's really that, you know, it's, it's the giant salad, it's fresh vegetable juices every day. And I went from eating one to two servings of fruits and vegetables per day, like a typical American, to eating between 10 and, or really 15 and 20 servings of fruits and vegetables every single day, day after day after day after day. That's a massive change, right? 15 to 20 servings. Yeah. I was getting about, you know, close to 15 servings, 12 to 15 servings from the two giant salads. And then the juices made up, you know, that was another eight glasses of juice per day, roughly 64 ounces. So um, that's how you maximize anti-cancer nutrition every day. And then there's a healing effect. You get this momentum, yeah. right? Healing momentum where you're just continually supplying your body with all of these wonderful beneficial nutrients. And, you know, things start happening. Like good things start happening. You're giving your body all these resources that it can use to repair, regenerate, detoxify, and heal. So, so that's the nutrition part. Exercise is also fantastic. Like exercise promotes detoxification. It flips on protective genes that are protective against cancer. It increases survival. It's been well studied. Cancer patients who exercise live longer, do better, have higher rates of survival and overall survival. Um, and so figuring out a way for you to exercise every day, doesn't matter what kind, you just need to be moving your body, huffing and puffing, getting a little sweaty. If you can get fresh air and sunshine, you know, while you're exercising, you're, you're compounding the benefits. Um, and that, so those two things, diet and exercise. And then the third big thing is really lifestyle and, you know, breaking your bad habits, you know, not smoking, not drinking, right? And then breaking your bad mental, emotional, and spiritual habits. Uh, and stress is a big part of that, is, is identifying the sources of stress in your life, being very honest with yourself about where is your stress coming from? Is some of it self-imposed, which usually that it is, and some of it's external, some of it's internal. And once you, you figure out, okay, what are all the sources of stress? The external ones are sometimes easier to deal with. And the internal ones, like you got to be really honest about who you are, what you believe, what you're holding on to, like bitterness and resentment. Are you willing to forgive everyone who's ever hurt you? That's what I did. Yep. I made a decision. I'm going to do it. I'm forgiving every person who has ever hurt me until there's no one left. And I didn't do it all in one sitting. It's a process you just have to work through. You know, we all have people in our past that have hurt us and it's big ways and little ways and they all need to be addressed and let go. And so, you know, those are the big three things, diet, exercise, stress reduction. And under those large categories, obviously there's a lot of bullet points, (laughs) you know what I mean? Which again, I talk about in my book and in the Square One program, and we help people really walk through this journey of, of radical life change. And at the end of the day, it sounds overwhelming, but it's not. It's just about changing your daily routine, you know, just making these simple, doable shifts to your daily routine and then repeating that routine tomorrow and the next day and so on. Um, and the more you learn, I think the easier it becomes because you, as your knowledge increases, then also your faith increases, right? And your hope and your confidence increase as your knowledge increases and your wisdom increases as your knowledge increases. And, um, and so I can scare somebody into eating healthy and it might 
you know, it, it might last a little while, but if I can encourage them and inspire them and educate them to eat healthy, then that to me is much, has much longer legs, you know, and I'm, I eat healthy because I'm excited about what it does for me, not because I'm afraid of not eating healthy, if that makes sense. I couldn't agree more with all of that, Chris. And you've truly done the hard work and broken all of that down into very simple steps for people to follow in your course. Again, I'll be linking all of this in the show notes. But it's funny, I feel like you kind of pulled a Kelly Turner back in 2004 in the sense of everything that you've read, you took bits and pieces from what you saw worked and incorporated it into your life, essentially. And even with the juicing, I mean, that's a major part of the Gerson therapy, right? Like you didn't necessarily do the Gerson therapy, but you pulled in protocols from these different modalities that have really helped people. So I love that. But hopping back to nutrition too, Chris, there's so much controversy, as you know, when it comes to plant protein versus animal protein. I feel like it's worse than politics. And you have people making these claims that phytates and oxalates and plants are making people sick. Can you provide some clarification on that and just share with listeners the important role of plants when it comes to promoting a healthy internal terrain to actually heal cancer? Yeah. The best way to get attention for yourself is to make an outrageous claim about something that people think is healthy, that it's secretly unhealthy and it's destroying their life. And so there's a number of influencers that have been you know, very successful, right? It's sensationalizing these ideas and, uh, and attracted followings telling people they can eat uh, really unhealthy foods and be healthy uh, because people love good news about their bad habits, right? They love to be told, oh, you should eat steak every day. You should eat butter, as much butter as you can, you know, swallow, this kind of thing. So uh, first, the food fear, uh, phytates, lectins, oxalates. It's, it's, the short answer is it's mostly nonsense, most people don't have any issue with these compounds. And if you go to the hospital and you survey all the patients in the hospital and hospital beds in the waiting room and you ask them, are you eating a lot of spinach, right? Are you eating a lot of tomatoes and Swiss chard? The answer is no, <laughs> okay? That's not why people are in the hospital, right? From eating too much spinach, from the oxalates and spinach. Are you eating a lot of legumes? No, right? Oh, the phytates and legumes. That's what, that's what the reason you had a heart attack. It's all those legumes and spinach. It's not. I mean, it just takes a moment's reflection to realize like this is a fictional fantasy idea that is not present. It's not, it's not a real world uh, phenomenon, right? This is not what's making people sick. What's making people sick is eating a diet that's too much meat, dairy, sugar, salt, processed food, junk food, and oil. Those are the things that we're all eating too much of and that the sickest Americans with heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, cancers, this is what they're eating by and large. There's a few exceptions of well, healthy eaters that, that get cancer or something, but the vast majority of unhealthy people uh, are not eating fruits and vegetables. And so this notion that vegetables, that plants are trying to kill you, right? That they're creating these compounds that are really toxic to you. The, the truth is that the compounds that plants create, the natural pesticides and insecticides that plants create to protect themselves in, <clears throat> in, the, in their environments, most of those are anti-cancer compounds, very potent anti-cancer compounds. And so... <clears throat> Uh, phytates is an easy one because uh, 
phytates were demonized years ago by the paleo community. What they didn't know, because none of them bothered to even do a simple Google search, phytates and cancer, phytic acid and cancer, is phytic acid is a known anti-cancer compound. You want it in your body. It's not hurting you, it's helping you. Uh, And it has several names, phytates, phytic acid, inositol, hexaphosphate, or IP6. It's all the same thing, right? So you Google IP6 and cancer and read the papers. Google phytic acid and cancer, read the papers. Like, you don't have to believe me. There's so many studies. Uh, So um, anyway, so that's, you know, just so easy to dispel those, you know, it's just health myths, right? They're health myths. Uh, now, what we know about animal protein is uh, there are a number of ways that animal protein contributes to cancer growth. I'm going to run through them quickly. Number one, processed meat is a group one carcinogen. It's a known cancer causer. So that's bacon, sausage, hot dogs, deli meats. Like Processed meat is a known cancer causer. Red meat is a group two carcinogen, which means it has a high probability, probable cause of cancer. And this is, you know, from the International Agency for Research on Cancer. After reviewing 800 studies, 800 studies, they came to these conclusions. So um, start, we'll start, start there, okay? Those are known cancer causers. And then there are cancer promoters in animal food, okay? So they are, and by the way, I have an article on Chris Beat Cancer. If you want to dig in and, and get links to the studies and the resources and what I'm talking about, you can go to crispbeatcancer.com, put animal protein in the search bar, and th- my article will come up that is thorough. And uh, it's called the Animal Protein Cancer Connection. But saturated fat fuels cancer growth. Cholesterol fuels cancer growth. Uh, when you eat animal protein, you're raising IGF-1, which is a hormone that speeds up cell division and is directly linked to uncontrolled cancer growth. When you eat animal protein, you're consuming some very... Uh, problematic cancer-promoting amino acids. Methionine is a big one. Glutamine is another big one. And leucine, right? These three amino acids are cancer growth promoters. um, And uh, they're very low in plant food and they're very high in animal food. Uh, Animal uh, meat, especially red meat and organ meat and some dairy is high in... uh, is uh, is high in a um, sugar molecule called NEU5GC, and it increases the risk of tumor formation in, in humans. It does not; in, it's not naturally found in the human body. Your immune system treats it like a foreign invader. Um, animal meat is high in heme iron. Iron is toxic. It is it is not good for you. You need a very small amount, which can be obtained through plant food. But too much free iron, heme iron in meat, especially red meat, organ meat, and sh- shellfish, causes its oxidative damage. It, it's an oxidant, pro-oxidant. And DNA damage, oxidative damage promotes cancer growth. Cancer cells love iron. Uh, there's uh, another inflammatory molecule. It's a metabolite produced by your gut bacteria when you eat animal protein, specifically choline and L-carnitine. That's called TMAO. And TMAO are associated with high levels of bad bacteria like Fusobacterium, which promotes cancer growth, and with heart disease, diabetes, and cancer, especially colorectal cancer. Um, another problematic mineral is phosphate, uh, phosphorus. 
Um, there's a study found that high dietary phosphate is in, in associated with increased risk of breast cancer. And so the highest phosphate foods are dairy and meat. And guess what? Phosphate is found in plant food like whole grains, but the phytate in whole grains limits your absorption of phosphate so you don't absorb too much. Interesting. That's another benefit of phytates. The, the lie about phytates is that they leach minerals from your body. It's totally false. Phytates are bound to minerals in the food that you're eating, and they limit the absorption. So you don't overdose on harmful minerals like calcium, iron, and phosphate, right? And even copper. Those minerals are harmful if you ingest too much, and they're all in high, uh, uh, they're all, they all exist in free form, high levels in animal food. So again, I'm running through this list quickly because there's a, there's a, it's a long list of all the different ways that an animal, that animal protein, especially a high animal protein diet can either cause or promote cancer growth. And then the last little bit of it is even the way you cook it. Because then when you cook animal food, when you cook meat, you're creating two potentially carcinogenic compounds, HCAs and PCAs. So HCAs are heterocyclic amines. PCAs are polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And basically they're created when, when flesh is cooked and when fat is cooked. And so that's not good. When you cook meat, it makes it even worse. Uh, when you grill meat, which most people do, they're grilling over gas or wood smoke or charcoal briquettes and you're producing carcinogens like benzene, acrylamide, acrylamide, and you're infusing the meat with these cancer-causing gases, and formaldehyde's another one. Yeah. So, uh, so just the method of cooking also increases the carcinogenic carcinogenicity of animal protein. <laughs> you know, so it's like. All these reasons. Now, someone might say, what about, what about grass-fed, you know, or what about wild-caught? My answer is, you know, a grass-fed cow, grass-fed beef, or wild-caught, uh, wild-killed venison, or whatever, is less bad. It's less bad. doesn't make it good, but it's less bad because, right, they're not pumping the animal full of growth hormones and steroids and antibiotics like they're doing in the factory farming industry. So sure, raising your own chickens and killing one and eating it, yeah, that is a, that is a healthier type of chicken than you're going to get from Tyson Foods. Um, but the excess consumption of animal protein is still problematic. It doesn't matter where the source. So my, my suggestion is... There's a simple rule of thumb that I follow and that we suggest. For people that have cancer and they're trying to heal, we, we advise like no animal protein. It's like, it's not going to help you. And it might, might be harmful. For people that are into prevention, uh, my suggestion is high quality, low quantity. So when you look around the world at the blue zones, you know, the healthiest, longest living populations, they're not vegan. They're not raw foodists. But they uh, generally, on average, eat about 95% plant-based. Yep. And what that looks like is they might eat a serving of animal protein a few times a week to a few times a month. 
it's a much lower level than the typical American or European, Canadian or Australian who's eating animal protein, meat or dairy or both three times a day, right? And a large serving, right, with each meal, as opposed to many other countries with much lower cancer rates where animal protein is treated like a condiment <laughs> on the dish, right? Like in, like you go to China and you get a bowl of noodles with vegetables. Yeah. There might be a few little slivers <laughs> of beef in there, right? A little bit of it. And, you know, 90% of the meal is, or is, is plants, you know, with a little bit of animal protein in there for seasoning and for flavor versus you go come to Texas and you got a 16 ounce ribeye on the plate, you know, with a side of mashed potatoes. <laughs> it's like, it's vastly different. I'll say one more thing. The average, uh, the, the protein thing, we've been so programmed to be obsessed with protein that um, people just think they need more protein than they actually do. The average uh, adult only needs about 50 to 60 grams of protein. It's easily achieved because every fruit, every vegetable, every nut, seed, whole grain, like leafy green, they all have amino acids that your body uses to assemble proteins. So it's easy to get sufficient protein eating a plant-based diet. And uh, I'm very active. I've been a CrossFitter for 12 years. And, it, you know, there are numerous competitive athletes Olympians, like world-class athletes, uh, Novak Djokovic, the best tennis player in the world, NFL football players, um, cage fighters, like bodybuilders, strongmen who only eat a plant-based diet. Like, well, how do they do it? They do it because you don't need animal protein to get healthy, fit, and strong. You just don't. And so The Game Changers is a great documentary about um, world-class athletes who excel eating a plant-based diet. So it, it just, you know, just dispels the myth that you need it. And then in terms of the cancer conversation, when you look at the body of evidence, the survivor evidence, what you'll find is if you watch all these interviews I've done over and over and over, you just see the, this, tr this same common thread. They're all eating a diet that's plant-based with lots of raw food or all raw for a, you know, several years typically. Um, and so, there's a lot more evidence that um, that is the easiest path uh, versus like the keto diet or carnivore, or some other diets to help yeah. a person get well. You know, it's your life. You can experiment with anything you want. But at the end of the day, it's like you got to look for the evidence. Where are the patients that have healed and what did they do? And my encouragement is like f imitate successful people, right? Find successful people. doesn't matter if we're talking about cancer or business or sports and do what they did to get successful, right? You walked right into it. I mean, the ketogenic diet, I feel like this is such a nuanced area. And there's been a lot of great research in the field of a metabolic approach to cancer. But the more I read, while I think a short-term keto diet, like very short, could be helpful for patients with aggressive, fast-growing cancers or brain cancers like leoblastoma. But I'm not so sure that adhering to strict keto long-term is really the best option for the cancer patient, particularly as it does kind of limit in a way those plant foods that we know are so 
vital. And I know Dr. Thomas Lodi has also spoken about like keto cycling for patients who want to experiment with keto, right? Like not doing it indefinitely, maybe doing two months on, two months off. What is your take on the keto diet? Well, I've got a, I've got a lengthy, lengthy article uh, summarizing uh, a numerous ketogenic diet studies for cancer. If you go to crispycancer.com, type in keto. The article is called The Evidence Against the Ketogenic Diet for Cancer. And, and 10 years ago, I was very open to this being a, uh, a valid, possibly helpful diet for cancer patients. When I first learned about Thomas C. Fried and his research and, you know, there was ch the chatter had started. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, let's see what this is about. Very open to it. But over the years, my opinion has changed because I've seen it fail uh, many people. And then as the research is published, it's also demonstrated clinically to not be effective either uh, for long-term survival. And I'll, uh, but anyway, I, I hope your listeners will go to Crispy Cancer, type in keto, read this article, look at the research, click through, read the studies I'm citing. But I'll just, I'll just talk about one, okay? One study, this was December 2018. And to my knowledge, there hasn't been another study this comprehensive since then. But there was a review of every published study on the ketogenic diet for cancer in humans, okay? They looked at every study and then did a review, you know, summarizing the evidence. And it basically found that clinical trials using the ketogenic diet for cancer have, quote, largely failed to prove survival prolonging effects. Largely failed. So... And that's what we've seen on an, on an individual basis. We've just seen people do it. It doesn't really, I mean, they don't, they don't get well, you know, so sometimes they, they're doing keto, but they're also doing chemo, <laughs> you know, or they're doing immunotherapies and other drug therapies, and maybe they get well, and that's terrific, but you can't point to the ketogenic diet and say, oh, it was the keto diet, you know, because they were doing a lot of other stuff. Right. It might've been the drugs. Um, so yeah, again, Everybody has to make their own choice and their own decision, but I would just beware of the hype. And that's why I wrote that article to help a person like really look at all the studies and all the research instead of just listening to an interview where somebody says like, oh, the keto diet for cancer is the best diet because cancer cells use sugar. And when you eat keto, you're starving the cancer cells. It's like, it's an overly simplistic reductionist idea that's not true. Uh, you can't starve cancer cells by only eating fat like cancer cells will adapt and they'll use fat for fuel. And some cancer cells prefer fat for fuel. And so, I mean, there was a 2018 study that found that fat fuels aggressive brain cancers. I read that. Yep. Slow yeah. Slow dividing gliocells are, which are more invasive and resistant to chemo and radiation therapy use fat, not glucose for energy. Anyway, there's a, there's a bunch, and those resources, again, you can find them in my keto article. So yeah, I would just be aware of that advice. I don't think it's the best advice. Have some people been helped by it? Maybe. But um, follow the path that, is, that, is the, that the most successful survivors have taken. Yeah, <laughs> no. that's the consistent theme here. I don't have any patent, you know, like I don't have any vested interest in this other than just the goodwill of humanity. Like I don't have a trademark on the plant-based diet or raw food, you know, you don't have to buy my book to do it, right? You don't have to buy anything from me to do this, right? Um, so it's like, I'm just telling you, this is what I've seen help the most people. And 
Like we don't need to reinvent, reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Chris, I could talk with you for hours, but I want to be sensitive of your time. I will say though, on the keto front, I think patients who do want to get into that quote unquote therapeutic state of ketosis, right? If they're doing like ozone therapy or high dose IVC, where it could really complement and bolster the treatment they're doing, they could just fast, right? Yes. You don't have to, Absolutely. you don't have to do a keto. You could fast for 24, 48 hours, boom, your body's in ketosis and then, you know, yes. continue to fill up on those plants the next day. So fasting is the best form of ketosis. It is because you're, you have all these uh, ancillary benefits in the body when you fast, right? Fasting has proven to weaken cancer cells, to strengthen healthy cells, to promote cell regeneration, to, to promote immune system regeneration. Like it's been proven that it strengthens your immune system, that um, it promotes detoxification. Fasting is amazing. And, and, you know, a great strategy is three to five days a month, right? Just as you're in your normal routine, three days on water every month. Yep. Uh, the other rule of thumb is like, wait, wait a week for every day that you fast. So you can do 24 hours every week. That's really easy. That's just going from dinner to dinner, right? Dinner on Friday and then wait and eat dinner on Saturday. That's 24 hours, right? That's like wh what Orthodox Jews do. So one day a week, eat on water, easy. If you do a two-day fast, wait two weeks and do it again. If you do, if you do a three-day fast, wait th three weeks, right? Four-day fast, wait four weeks. That's, that's the, you know, the simplest strategy. And uh, fasting is incredible. So you get these, there are certainly benefits to being in ketosis in the short term, but you maximize them when you're doing a water fast. And when you're just trying to eat a diet that's high fat, you're you're not getting all these wonderful benefits that happen when you restrict calories, when you stop eating and trigger these survival mechanisms and anti-inflammatory molecules and healing molecules and, and stem cell regeneration and, and autophagy and all these really incredible things that God made survival mechanisms in our body. Like you don't get the benefit of them if you keep eating. Exactly. It's truly just tapping into the body's ability to heal, right? And my yeah. mom's been doing that. I mean, she started doing high-dose IVC I want to say three or four months ago. And on the days that she receives treatment, she'll do a 24-hour fast. And it's it's truly been very helpful. Yeah. And fasting around treatment sensitizes cancer cells. We've seen this is cool research done by Walter Longo and some others. That yeah, that and that that's ongoing. So they're really still studying and testing and doing what, you know, trying to figure out with patients like, you know, 24 hours before treatment, the day of treatment and, and the day after. So it's almost like a 72 hour fast around a chemotherapy treatment day. Uh, it seems to be uh, make the chemo work better, right? So more cancer cell die off, for example, but also less healthy cell damage. So that that's, hey, that's phenomenal. You know, obviously I didn't do chemotherapy, but we have a lot of people in our community that are, that are doing that and we just love on them and encourage them. We want, we want them to do well. We want them to optimize their outcomes, right? right? Uh, whatever treatment path they choose. But at the same time, understand that, look, full circle, healing happens at home. Yep. And there's so much you can do to help yourself in between treatments that really will increase your odds of survival or decrease your risk of recurrence if you're in remission. Like if you're just willing to, to take some action to change your life for the better. Exactly. And Chris, too, one other question for you. I know you had mentioned before that back in, what, 2008, 2009, you were interested in the keto diet about all this research coming out, and then you quickly changed your tune. Has there been anything else 
that you've maybe changed your stance on over the past few years? Well, I wouldn't say I quickly changed my tune on keto. It took me years. Like I was open to it for many years. I sort of stayed, stayed neutral, you know, just watching and observing and, and, you know, look, you know, just trying to see, is there something to this? Where are the survivors? That's what I was looking for. And then what's the research showing anyway? Um, but the initial keto hype was based on my, my studies and they weren't even that great. Um, yeah, things that I've changed my mind over the years. I've experimented a lot in my own with my own personal health over the years. And so there was a period of time, you know, over 10 years ago, uh, where I did, you know, I, I kind of was um, enamored with uh, the Weston Price idea of eating grass fed and drinking raw milk and things like that. And I did that, you know. Um, and, but then as I really started to read and research and look at the science of nutrition and cancer survival and what's promoting cancer growth, I realized like, oh yeah, no, like I don't need to be consuming these foods. You know, uh, these foods are not long-term health promoters. So that was a, that was a big one for me for sure. Uh, that was maybe around 2010, kind of when I was really getting started with the blog, I was also experimenting with other stuff, you know. Uh, other dietary strategies in my life. I certainly went down the keto rabbit hole, went down the paleo rabbit hole, trying to learn and understand and see if there was value there. Uh, the carnivore rabbit hole is, has zero value. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, There's no car. Humans aren't carnivores. (laughs) You know, it's just like, it's pretty obvious. Uh, if you really study human anatomy and study zoology, (laughs) like there's nothing about us that is, that is even remotely similar to a carnivorous animal, even the way our mouths are structured, like we're designed to chew. That's like, we have a lateral, lateral jaw movement. That's for chewing fiber. We see in color, that's so we can recognize ripe fruits and vegetables. Uh, we don't have we don't have claws or or giant fangs to be able to kill our prey with our you know with our claws and teeth. <laughs> it's, like, it's like you know it's just it makes it sounds cool. It's good marketing, right? Carnivore. It sounds real tough, you know, and like, but uh, yeah, no, we're not carnivores. Um, but no, those are the big ones. That, that for sure is just just the diet, experimenting with diet stuff. But the things that I learned in two thousand four, for the most part, when I was trying to get well, have have held true over the years. Like you know, truth, foundational truth is is sort of like immutable. Like if it's true, it it will persist. It the truth will prevail, as we've all heard, and that truth has prevailed. It wasn't just in my own experience. It's like I've seen people over and over and over heal. I'm meeting them constantly. When I speak at conferences and meeting new people, we're finding them online, like constantly finding new survivors. And when we dig in and ask them what they did, it's like always the same stuff, you know? So, um, that gives me a lot of, you know, uh, personal satisfaction that I'm not preaching some dangerous message and misleading people. Cause that's the last thing I want, right. right. Is to, is to lead anybody astray or, or give them advice that's that turns out to be bad advice. Um, other other small regrets. I, there have been there have been times in the past where I've been an enthusiastic, you know, uh, user and promoter of a certain brand of supplements, you know, different brands that turned out to be not very good. That turned out to be lousy. Like 
you know, you think, man, I love this brand. I love this product. This is great. And then, you know, a year or two later, somebody, some study comes out and it shows it's full of heavy metals or something, you know, it's like loaded with mercury or arsenic or cadmium. It's like, oh man, you know, so that's the one thing you have to be aware of. And I think that the teachable information out of that, those experiences that I've had is that I just rotate brands. Yep. with supplements. You just just rotate brands. Try to buy organic brands of supplements. Rotate brands. Uh, you know, there's, you just never know from one batch to the next. You know, you don't know how the company, any of these companies are testing for purity and for contamination. And, and that can change from one batch to the next. Supplement companies are bought and sold yep. and they change ownership and change hands and they change formulas and they're trying to cut costs. And so that industry is just, rife with, uh, problems. And, um, so I love taking, you know, supplements and I take different things, you know, from time to time, but, um, just rotate brands. I, I, am not, I don't have any allegiance to any supplement company. I don't have my own supplements. I decided years ago, I, that's not something I want to do. You know, I can, it keeps me in a, in a place where I can be honest and impartial. That's great advice. And I mean, truly, it comes down to intention, right? And Chris, you have such pure intentions. And that's why you have such a loyal follower base is because people know that you want to lead them on the right path. So certainly, there are things outside of our control, right? But I think the concept of rotation is definitely a a game changer there. Mm. And being almost 20 years out now from your initial diagnosis, knowing what you know now, it seems like you were on the right path in 2004. But is there anything that you would have either changed or done sooner in your cancer healing journey with everything that you know now? Well, people ask me sometimes when I still have surgery, knowing what I know now. And, uh, and the answer is I would not have rushed into surgery as quickly. Uh, you know, knowing what I know now, if there, if there was all of a sudden I found a tumor, right, I wouldn't just rush to have it cut out. I would go back onto the hardcore path. Because I eat a plant-based diet now, but I'm not eating two giant salads and drinking 64 ounces of vegetable juice every day. <laughs> you know, that's the hardcore path. Uh, and I'm not getting IV vitamin C treatments every week and things like that. Like, so I would get, get back on the hardcore path first and monitor my progress and, um, and then decide, you know, if I'm doing well, then I just keep stay on the path. And, um, and so, but yeah, going back, I mean, I really got on that path right away. So there's very little I would change because I was I started the raw food diet like a week or so after I had surgery. Wow. It just came into my life really, you know, right away. So I have very little regret about that. I mean, the main thing really is I mean, if I could if I could um you know, go back, I would I would probably tell myself like cuz there was a lot of there was a lot of stress and and you know, contention in, uh, what I, in, in my inner circle around what I was doing. And if I could go back and give myself any advice, I would just say, don't worry about anybody else. Just focus on you. Take care of yourself. Yep. Like don't, don't try to evangelize, yep. you know, cause I was, I was like, I jumped on this hardcore health bandwagon. I was trying to drag everybody along with me and like, A, they didn't want me to do it. And B, they definitely didn't want me to try to talk them into it. <laughs> You yeah. know? What's the saying? It's like work in silence and let your success make the noise, right? It's the same, yes. same ideology. A hundred percent. Absolutely. 
And, and I do give that advice now, right. To people. I'm like, don't, don't try to convert your family members. Don't get on social media and try to be an influencer and try to preach this message to the world. I know you're, you believe it and you're passionate about it, but you just need to focus on you. You need to get well, yeah. right? Get yourself well, give yourself several years of, of not only taking care of yourself and healing and reading and researching and learning before you get out and start evangelizing. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, Jesus waited till he was 33. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, or, or 30. Yeah, I guess he was 30. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, he, he probably knew enough in his early 20s, right, to, to, to preach. But uh, I waited six and a half years after my diagnosis before I said anything about it on the internet. You know, it's like, so I'm not saying anybody has to wait that long, but you really, there needs to be a healing season where you're just focused on you. You're not focused on anybody else. Uh, and I've seen patients make this mistake of they're too quick to try to influence others when they really don't have their house in order. Yeah. And, uh, and, and in some cases it, it, it backfires on them and all the stress. I mean, I'm, I could name some names I won't, but yeah, all the stress of being a, a, an influencer and a public figure and all this kind of stuff, I ended up wrecking their health. Yeah, stress is definitely a, a very mm-hmm. underrated uh, factor in, in cancer yeah. development. Yeah, I've just tried to keep my life low stress and not take on more than I know I can handle. And God's good; He's blessed me. I've just been sowing seed for a long time, and He's you know He has watered it, and it has multiplied and produced a harvest. And I've been able to reach a lot of people and encourage a lot of people. And I'm just going to continue to do that. I'm just yeah. glad to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. It's like it, the opportunity to to hopefully encourage more people is why I say yes to these kind of things. Absolutely, Chris. Well, again, I've been a very, very big fan of you and your work for you know the past over the past decade. So I'm just truly honored to have had this conversation with you. But my very last question for you, and this is my favorite one to ask my interviewees, is what does being well and strong mean to you? To me, being well is the is the absence of disease, right? Being well is not only feeling good in my physical body, but mentally, right? My being at peace, right? Um, being practicing gratitude, keeping reminding myself of all the good things that I have in my life, which is one of the most powerful things you can do is just to stop in a moment of frustration or, you know, anger or just when you're having a bad day, things aren't going right. Just to stop in that, catch yourself in that moment when you're in that funk and go, okay, all right, what's good in my life? Right? What's good? And then you start naming those things like, what's good? I've got a wife who loves me. I have two beautiful daughters. We have a nice home. We have a home. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? We have air conditioning that's pretty great in Memphis, right? We've got heat in the winter. I have food in the refrigerator. I have a car. Um, I've got a pretty great dog and a cat that I love a lot. Uh, I've got parents who love me and support me. I've got in-laws who love me, uh, have clothes. I mean, I can do this all day. Yeah, You know what I mean? And it, it doesn't take, it doesn't take that many, you know, items on the list to just shift my perspective 
out of feeling sorry for myself or whatever's going on to back into a state of gratitude and thankfulness and just saying, thank you, God, like I'm blessed. You know what? Yeah, I got some problems. I got some difficulties. I got some frustrations, but man, like I'm blessed in so many ways. My life is so good. And there's somebody dying in the hospital right now. A lot of people dying that would love to trade places with me. Right? I mean, that's my gratitude hack. It's like, I'm not dying in the hospital today. It's a pretty good day. <laughs> yeah. Chris, that's one of the most inspiring like concepts that you preach is the fact that cancer happened for you, not to you, right? And just it gave you a whole perspective on life. I mean, again, even with my mom and her journey, I just have a new appreciation for the littlest moments, right, in daily life. Yeah. And I think God draws us closer to him through suffering. Yeah. And he is faithful and he is there, right? And he will see us through. So he'll see you through Romans 8 28. He works all things for our good. And all things means bad things, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like he doesn't have to work the good things for our good. It's the bad things, the difficulty, the adversity, the trials, the tribulations, this, the illness, right? Yeah. Like the, he works those things for our good. And, um, and so uh, that was the first verse that I found in my cancer journey that like really went deep. You know, I was like, man, okay. <laughs> like, I love this promise right now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I really, I didn't, I didn't appreciate it until right now. And, and now I'm like, man, I'm holding on to this one. Um, so that's, that's the well part. The strong part, just to fully answer the question Obviously, I love to, to train and work out. And so the feeling physically strong in my body, um, but also the being mentally strong, you know, is important because when you're on a healing journey, you, you have to be disciplined, right? You have to be determined and disciplined and diligent. And th that is mental strength, right? Mental, the cancer battle happens in your mind. Like you got to win it in your mind before you can win it in your body because yeah. your mind directs your body. And so being strong means having a strong will to live, right? And that strong will to live is the motivation and the catalyst that propels you forward, right? Your reason for living. It's why you choose broccoli instead of a corn dog, <laughs> Right, right. It's why you get up a little earlier than you want to to make your juice for the day. Right. It's why you go for a run or to the gym when you don't feel like it. Right. That's the mental strength uh, that you have to develop, and and your mind is a muscle too. And the more you exercise your muscle, your mental muscle, the stronger you get. Right. And the easier those habits become whether they're thought habits, choosing to forgive people quickly, choosing to practice gratitude, choosing to do things you don't feel like to, doing because you know you need to do them. Like all that gets easier and you get better at it and stronger at it if you just work that mental muscle. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you asked that question because it's, it's a good one. It's a really good question. You know, it's, that, was a, that was fun to answer. <laughs> That was a beautiful answer. Chris, such words of wisdom. Thank you again so much for your time. I'm I'm beyond excited to share this particular interview with listeners. So thank you again for all of, you know, all that you do in the space and just continue to keep up the great work. I appreciate everything you do. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the great questions. It was really fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode. 
If you would like to support the show, please subscribe, leave a rating and review, and share it with others. Be sure to visit wellandstrong.com to access notes from the show and to stay current with new content. I'm so grateful you joined me. Be well and be strong. Be strong.